0: Hello all, and the warmest welcomes to yet another episode of the True Crime Enthusiast Podcast, the number one North Wales spare room-based true crime show striving to seek out and bring to your ears those tales of terror and horror that may be unfamiliar to you, may be obscure and often long forgotten, may even be unbelievable, but are all true from the length and breadth of the UK and Ireland. I'm the one seeking these out for you, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. It's fabulous to be back once again with you all and have you all joining me, which I thank you for doing so. And I hope that as you're hearing me, then you and yours are all good and you're all well. So guess what? It's only episode three of the new series and I've already changed the running order of episodes. I'm waiting on research materials winging their way to me for something. So the focus of the tale this week is one that I had planned, but for a bit later on in the series. But worry not, it works out fine coming here as it has, because through researching this one, I've also frameworked this month's bonus Patreon episode, and it will be a tale, or perhaps tales, of a similar ilk. So every cloud and all that, you know. That'll be coming to you in a couple of weeks, of course, and if you want to hear that one and others, such as A Lonely Death on Gun Hill, murdering lincoln and the latest to kill and kill again then to do so is cheaper than nicking a supermarket trolley for yourself and it's so easy it should be sunday morning just head on over to the patreon site and seek out the true crime enthusiast podcast always with the podcast suffix on it and just go from there or you don't even need that faff i've put a link in the episode show notes that will take you right to it Quicker than a new true crime podcast pops up, you can be hearing these and more, and you can be getting yourself some bonus enthusiast, perhaps a bit of swag, and a guaranteed shout out. Which this time around, alongside my returning supporters, goes to Heather Hubbard, Jane Harley, Pedro Veloso, Eve Russell de Clifford, Michelle Walsh, and Megan Morris, plus Helen Lewis and Erica Gray, who've opted to annually support the show. Which just putting out there. Should you wish to do so, then you can do at a discount. Thank you very much, all. Your support is so much appreciated, as you know. Now, this time around also, I'm pleased to share that friend of the show, Adam, from the UK True Crime podcast, in conjunction with crime writer Catherine Skeet-Yaff, author of The Lie She Told, has launched a new book publishing business, Crime Publishing Network which, as the name suggests, is exclusive for the true crime or crime fiction genres, but is open to both published and aspiring authors. Now, he's got some strings to his bow, Adam, as he's podcast host, he's an author, he's a live speaker, he's former WWF champion, and now the list goes on and on. And no doubt, this venture will do well also. Adam and Catherine have launched CPN, offering better deals than your current one if you're already a published author. And if becoming an author is something that you aspire to do, then perhaps that's something they can help you with. So get in touch and contact them with your ideas. You're guaranteed a timely response within the month. Details of the Crime Publishing Network can be found in the episode show notes. And if your fancy's been tickled there, then ooh, then head on over and check it out. And you never know, I may be discussing something with them myself very soon. But I digress. That's for another time that is. On with the task in hand. This time around then, not too much buggering about the houses this week. It brings a change to the scheduled episode as I've said. But the tale that I've replaced it with is one that has no less horror and is no less shocking, I promise you. It concerns something that's seemingly, worryingly, a growing trend here in the UK. The acid attack. Now this is not a new thing, and these happen across the world of course, but per capita, the UK has one of the world's highest rates of recorded acid attacks, the number of which have increased alarmingly in recent years. In a recent survey commissioned by the Home Office and conducted by Leicester University, it interviewed some 25 prisoners in England and Wales who had been convicted of offences of harm involving corrosive substances and looked at 600 crimes involving this for the subsequent report. Now the findings from speaking to serving prisoners were that corrosives were favoured because of their ease to obtain. Many forms used, for example bleach or low concentrate ammonia, were available online or from high street retailers. They were chosen for their ease to conceal and for their adaptability as a weapon. Because of this corrosive substances have now been linked to a number of gang crimes with acid becoming a quote a weapon of first choice for gang members. They know there are advantages in using acid to hurt someone rather than using a knife or a gun for example because the charges are more serious if you're caught with either of the latter two and these bring with them a higher tariff of prison sentence. Sadly and I'm sure that you'll hear me chip in with my thoughts about this throughout the episode A perpetrator is more likely to attract a GBH with intent charge than an attempted murder one for using acid, whilst using it maintains dominance, power and control among gang peer groups. Now as unthinkable as it is to use, and you really have to question the mindset of anyone who can do something so barbaric to anyone for any reason, don't you? It's not just limited to gang wars, there can be several circumstances that acid is used in, in an attack. It can be used as a torture method in an organized crime or domestic violence setting, it can be used in a hate crime, although reportedly this is rare, or it can be used for the purposes of revenge. Now what happens that warrants this kind of revenge, I couldn't even begin to get my head around, but sadly There are some that feel that disfiguring and life-changing the victim with corrosive substances is totally warranted for their perceived slights against them. The intention being to cause the victim lasting physical and emotional damage that the victim must live with for the rest of their lives. Now there are several high-profile cases of note as an example that will perhaps be familiar to the listener. Names such as Katie Piper or Mark Van Dongen Where this has been inflicted upon them in the most horrific, unimaginable, and life changing way, inflicted upon them by a person they once considered the closest to them. Now, that must be horrendous enough to come to terms with as it is, eh? But what if it's an attack that's totally at random? What if your life changes beyond all imagination at the hands of someone you don't know, for whatever reason you have no idea? because of a case of mistaken identity. How do you even begin to come to terms with that? Well, this episode, you'll hear just such a tale. The episode contains details and descriptions of a crime and events involving graphic description of injury that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing, so please use discretion whilst you're listening in all. Bearing that in mind, Please join the true crime enthusiast for a tale that I've entitled. Scarred. For our tale, this time around, we're off back not as far as we usually do here on the show, this time only back as far as 2014, and to the only city in the county of Cornwall in southwest England, the city of Truro. Now it's one of the smallest cities in the UK, Truro, being home to just over 20,000 people. It's Cornwall's county town and centre for its admin, leisure and retail. A notable people either from or associated with Truro, and I'm proper scraping the barrel for WikiStats here this time around folks, apologies. A William Golding, author of Lord of the Flies. Make sure you've got the conch while you listen to that. Queen drummer Roger Taylor. And my favourite, and who I found the most interesting, the late Barbara Joyce West, the second to last survivor of the sinking of the Titanic, who passed away in 2007, aged 96. And Pop Trivia Quiz was only pipped by the final survivor of the sinking, Milovina Dean, who was just two months old at the time, and who died in 2009 at the age of 97. Back in 2014, Number 40, Carine Road in Truro, a large property located in a sprawling but quiet, well-kept cul-de-sac, was also the home to the Christophorus family, 29-year-old property developer Andreas, his wife of just a year, 32-year-old Pierre, and the couple's 18-month-old toddler son, Theo. And it's fair to say that for the young family, life was good. Following in the footsteps of his Cypriot-born father, Christoph the privately educated Andreas had established himself as somewhat of a successful businessman and entrepreneur, and provided well for his family. At first, working his way up through the Christophorus family property management and events planning business, following graduating from Plymouth University with a first-class business degree, Andreas had demonstrated his dynamic by progressing from, at first, events manager to then rapidly becoming general manager of a Newquay holiday park. Never want to sit back while he could be driving forward, classic car enthusiast Andreas was also instrumental in developing Newquay's Run to the Sun custom car event into the three-day event which now attracts about 100,000 car fans every year to Newquay, if that's your type of thing while simultaneously obtaining and developing properties of his own in the Truro and Yuki areas. Now by 2014, this hard work ethic and shrewd business acumen had paid off, for as well as having amassed a large property portfolio that he managed, Andreas was listed as a director in no less than nine registered and successful companies, including, as we've said, the Run to the Sun event, Chase Events Limited. He was a joint director of Cranstar Property Management in Newquay and ASC Property Management, his own company, which he'd set up in 2009 and which he ran from the family home in Carine Road. Now, you don't get to such a stand-in by coming into the office for a half day every other week. You've got to put the hard work, time and effort in for success at anything. And Andreas did just this. He'd converted a lower room at the front of the house to become his home office, and would often work seven days a week, spending up to 16 hours a time plugging away here at his computer, yet all to give the family the idyllic lifestyle that they'd come to enjoy, because there was a balance seat. Widely available photographs show Andreas to be a smiling man enjoying himself with friends at all manner of functions, in selfies with his beloved wife and his cherished toddler son, This is someone who looks happy and has the world at his feet. The man travelling to Truro in the red Peugeot partner van early in the afternoon of Tuesday December 9th 2014 had never met Andreas Christophoros but over his 5 hour, 300 mile journey from the town of Hastings in East Sussex his purpose already pre-decided His rage and determination grew and ensured that before the day was out, the lives of both Andreas and he would be changed forever. Which I'll tell you about following a short word from the show sponsors. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, the past year has been a particularly trying one for everybody, and though we may be coming through it, many of us out there are still finding things difficult. Personally, I've found the latter few months especially challenging with personal loss, being separated from the people closest to me and ensuring that I'm there for them doing what I can as best I can be, striving for a decent balance between my personal life, my work life and the responsibilities I've got to do so. It can be tough and it can be trying. So whatever it is that's preventing you from achieving your goals or is interfering with your happiness, better help can help you. Now just to clarify this isn't self-help what better help does is assesses whatever issues you may be facing and calling on the broad range of expertise it has available. It matches you up with your own licensed professional therapist for professional counselling with specialists in a vast range of issues available some of which you may not have locally available to you and one selected that best suits your needs. For whatever is bothering you any issues from depression to sleeping troubles, in less than 24 hours you can start communicating with your own personal counsellor in a confidential and private online environment, whom you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions with, message anytime you wish, and from whom you'll get thoughtful and timely responses and feedback. BetterHelp is a much more affordable service than traditional offline counselling, is available for clients anywhere in the world to use and even has financial aid available for the use of the service should it be needed. I want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com forward slash TCE. Join over 1 million people who've taken charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com forward slash TCE. Now the events of that Tuesday in December 2014 I'll tell here with a mix of my own narrative through research interspersed with Andreas's own repeated accounts that I also found. I found that's been the best way to do it. So Andreas begins as follows. We'd previously just started a new business so it was all guns blazing and it was a typical December day for me. I was working from home my baby son Theo had been up ill throughout the night so he and my wife Pia were both in bed catching up on sleep from my office window just before 4 p.m i saw a red Peugeot partner van driving slowly down the road towards the house my father owns one exactly the same the same make model and color and for a second i thought it was him then i remembered he was in Cyprus Thinking little more of this, Andreas carried on with what he was doing, when a few moments later, there was a knock at the front door of the house. In Andreas' own account, he continues. There was a knock at the door, and I presumed that it was a courier delivering some online shopping. When I opened the door, as you would normally then, in one motion, there was a man I'd never seen before standing on the doorstep. He was holding a large beaker in his hand, And in one moment, he flung his arm up towards me. Bang! I instantly received a large beaker of liquid to my face. Andreas said later that he didn't have time to blink, so suddenly this happened. He went on. He was stood two steps down from my doorstep, so he threw it in an upright motion, and the contents came up, hit the ceiling above me, raining down on my back. My t-shirt almost instantly disintegrated from top to bottom. It just rolled away, hanging off me like a waistcoat. That was the moment I knew it was acid. The beaker had been filled to the brim with sulfuric acid taken from a car battery and as it hurtled up towards the ceiling, it sent a spray of acid across Andreas' face and neck before dropping down and showering onto his torso. The man who threw it said just five words to Andreas before running off back to the van and speeding off. This is for you, mate. Andreas continued. It's very hard to put into words the pain of sulfuric acid burns to your face and torso. I've never felt pain like it. My eyes, my face were on fire. It was as if someone had thrown petrol over me and set it alight. my face, arms, and body were burned, my shirt was disintegrating, and I could feel my face melting. Thankfully, I realized what it was straight away. I stumbled down the hall, heading for the kitchen at the other end of the house to douse myself in water. I knew it was vital to get water onto my face as soon as possible. all the time, I was screaming at Pierre to phone 999. My wife says my screams will haunt her until the day she dies. Pia, hearing Andreas's agonising screams, immediately rushed downstairs to his aid. Now her feet clad only in socks, Pia, unaware of what had happened, ran straight through the acid, which ate through the cotton and caused burns to her feet. Trying to assist a husband who was frantically trying to douse himself in water, Pierre contacted the emergency services and recalled later, My first sight of Andreas was truly shocking. It was as though his face was dying, melting. As Pierre was requesting an ambulance, Andreas had dashed out into the cul-de-sac, knocking on neighbours' doors. Desperate to find someone with medical knowledge who could help him, he was being tended to in agony while his distraught wife tended to their son when both the police and an ambulance arrived just a short time later. Is't that the absolute stuff of nightmares indeed, that isn't it? Andreas was rushed immediately to the Royal Cornwall Hospital in Trellisk, less than a mile away from the family home where medical staff were horrified at the extent of his injuries photographs of andreas that were taken as he lay in his hospital bed are available to see and i've shared one such on the show's instagram page though they do make for graphic viewing now i haven't shared them wanting to sensationalize or out of any insensitivity to andreas and his family i haven't done that at all but rather i've shared them to bring home the acute horror of what was inflicted upon him because describing it only goes so far i want you to have a real idea of the extent of his injuries although in agony he was still fighting to stay conscious at this time and despite his pain was able to give important information to police who were at his side as he was admitted to the emergency room. There was no chance of him giving any kind of description of the attacker. As I said before, Andreas hadn't had time to even blink before he was attacked, let alone register a full description of the assailant. But he could tell police about the red Peugeot partner van he'd seen approaching the house only moments before the fateful knock at the door. Medical staff then took over and began working on the injured man, but almost immediately realised that so severe were his burns Specialist care greater than the capacity they had there would be required. Thus, Andreas was immediately transported by medical plane to Swansea Hospital in South Wales, home to one of the UK's major burns units, where so gravely wounded was he that he lapsed into a coma. He recalled later My last memory before lapsing into a coma was one of a doctor leaping onto the trolley I was lying upon straddling my chest and pouring bag after bag of saline into my eyes in the hope of saving my sight andreas's wife and his mother who'd made the trip with him were told gently by doctors there that he was unlikely to survive the night so severe were his injuries and that if he did then it would be nothing short of a miracle now imagine hearing that when you must be already unable to comprehend what had happened and then being told that. You can't, because it doesn't bear thinking about, does it? Pierre said later, It was the longest night of my life. I could only look at Andreas and will him to live. The burns his eyesight. They were all things we could overcome. I just couldn't lose him. Meanwhile, as Andreas lay comatose, a police inquiry had been launched on the grounds of police investigating it as an attempted murder, the one they described as a quote a rare and isolated attack, and the following morning, the officer leading the inquiry from Truro CID, Detective Inspector Sharon Donald, gave a press conference. She refused to give details of where Andreas had been taken, a quote for the victim's safety but issued this major point of appeal to the press. We are keen to speak to anyone who saw any unusual people or vehicles in the area yesterday, in particular a red van. If you were the driver of the red Peugeot Partner van seen in the area around 1600, please get in touch with police so we can eliminate you from our inquiries. Meanwhile, standard inquiries were underway in the Carine Road area, with increased patrolling of the area action to reassure the shaken residents, because it would make you brick it, wouldn't it, something so horrific and so random happening right on your doorstep. And random it was, for on the surface, there seemed to be no motive whatsoever for such a horrifying attack. Indeed, none of Andreas's friends or family could even begin to hazard a guess as to why someone would target him. Now Andreas lay comatose in an intensive care bed at the Swansea Burns Unit for four days before he came around and almost immediately he gestured for a pen and paper. When this was brought to him, after some time, carefully using his heavily dressed hands and arms, he wrote, Who would do this to me? It was a question no one in the room could answer. Although, by that time, police had already arrested and the previous day charged someone for the attack, but we'll get on to that a bit later. Reportedly, only a short time after this, Andreas had the entire room laughing when he again gestured for the pen and paper, this time writing, Can I have a pint of cider? Now from what I learned of Andreas while I was researching the case, that's a testament to the spirit of the guy, that's his sense of humour and it must have been the first inclination to his devastated, distraught family sat around his bedside, that however gravely injured, however life-changing Andreas' injuries were, his drive and his spirit remained. But it would be some way back for him, and they knew this, because at first, Andreas couldn't bring himself to see his own reflection. He'd even asked for the hospital mirrors to be covered, so he didn't have to look at himself. Unreal, eh? Eventually, while surrounded by friends, Andrea steeled himself and decided to glance at his reflection. He said later, I chose to do it while I had a couple of my close friends there that day. I thought, if I'm going to break down, I'd rather do it amongst friends than on my own. But it was all right. It was what it was. Remarkable guy, this one, eh? I know I've said it a few times so far but you can't even begin to imagine can you imagine seeing your own reflection as being a hurdle that you have to overcome and once he'd completed that one Andreas told later how in his mind he then had to face yet another hurdle how would his son be with him he described years later Theo was unaware really, being only 18 months old at the time. The idea of not being able to see him crucified me. Not being able to watch him mature, to see him on his first day of school. All the things a parent wants to witness, that haunted me. From the time I could speak, we made the decision for him not to come near any hospital, and alas, he was passed from one family member to another. As long as he had love, food, water and toys, we were satisfied we were doing the best thing for him. It's sad he had to be passed around like he was, but it's given him strength and independence that most kids of his age don't have. The biggest monster I had to overcome was, how would he perceive me when he finally saw me? Will he even recognise me? And if he does, will he be scared of what I look like? I was also concerned about the way Theo would react to the face masks I had to wear. Will he be scared of the masks? You always think the worst, don't you? It was almost two months of him being away from me, and two months of me thinking this, and that haunted me. But luckily, he's amazing. On the first day I saw him, as I said, after some two months, when Pierre got him out of the car, He grabbed his mum and nestled into her neck. He wouldn't look at me. My heart sank. It was my worst nightmare coming true in front of my eyes. However, then, about two minutes later, when I started talking, he knew it was me straight away. He turned around, stuck his arms out and signalled for a hug and shouted, Daddy, Daddy, it's you. My son was never a huggy baby either. He was always known as starfish in my family, actually, because every time you tried to hug him, he would stick out his arms and legs. That day, he hung on to me for almost an hour and wouldn't let go. It was literally the best feeling in the world. Without Theo, God knows where I'd be now. He's just absolutely incredible. I have, over the last year, spoon-fed him bits of information Bringing him in the loop and allowing him to ask questions. Now, this has been a careful and planned process which we sought advice on first, but we wanted him to know fully before he started school. He now knows that a bad man threw acid at me and that I'd done nothing wrong to deserve the attack. He knows the police caught the bad man and he's going to be in jail for a very long time and can't get out. That last bit was quite important because he kept asking. What if he gets out, Daddy? About a week before he started school, he said to me, Don't worry, Daddy. I know you did nothing wrong, and the bad man is in jail. That felt like the biggest breakthrough. However, sadly, he associates any hospital appointment with me spending long periods of time away from him. It doesn't matter if I tell him I'll be back tomorrow. It still changes his mood, and I know that part of him doesn't believe that I'll be back the next day. Isn't that one of the most unreal things you'd ever hear? Proper got me that did, proper got me. So, with the love and support of his family and friends, and as we've said, his two hurdles passed, Andreas began the long road back to go in some way to rebuilding his life. And that's not over-dramatising anything, there's simply no other way to put it. Something like this changes everything in an instant. The scar into him was extensive, for not only had the sulfuric acid struck Andreas in the face and eyes, it had also coated his torso and arms, causing deep burns to them. Over countless surgeries, which Andreas still has to undertake even today, in what ongoing will be a constant for him, 90% of his face had to be reconstructed in painful skin graft operations using skin taken from other parts of his body, including his neck his scalp and the skin from his inner thighs he'd lost completely the sight in his right eye and was only able to retain partial sight in his left despite a battle to save it because his eyelids had been completely destroyed in the attack and his eyes would no longer close he said some time later not having eyelids has probably been the most torturous thing that i've been through you can't hide from the light you can't shut your eyes. Aesthetically, I'm not too bothered. It wasn't as awful as I'd imagined. Slowly, I've learned to expect what to see when I look in a mirror, but I need things to work. At the moment, I've got issues with my eyelids and my nose and my mouth. From the moment I wake, I'm without proper sight. It takes about 30 minutes to get my eyes working, having to use my fingers to manipulate my eyes to get the gunk out so I can see. I will need countless surgical procedures to try and get my eyelids sorted. They've been the biggest struggle, because the scars contract so much. Since doctors started working on them, my eyelids have already gone twice, and my last set have already pulled right down to my cheekbones. There's been an inch and a half contraction, so it's a case of getting the eyelids working. and back in very shortly for further work on them, and from there, we'll see where we go. No words, is there? What do you even say? What do you even say there? Now, aside from this battle, aside from the array of fresh challenges Andreas faced when he returned home after several weeks of surgery, such as his new sensitivity to sunlight, which meant he could only travel outside in the back of his car with thick blankets pinned to its windows to prevent any sunlight penetrating. Andreas also faced another challenge from that fateful Tuesday, convincing police investigating the crime that this had been a motiveless attack upon him. From the moment Andreas woke from his four day coma, he'd been questioned by police, who, although, as I've said, had arrested and charged a man with the attack some three days after it, could find no motive whatsoever for it because the attacker wouldn't say, he wouldn't speak about it, and Andreas came to believe that he himself was even under suspicion he recalled later they were very intrusive they interviewed me straight away i can barely remember it because i was so sedated but they had to do it there and then as they knew there was a risk i would die so they had to gather as much evidence as they could just in case the information i gave to the police was enough to track down my attacker david phillips who lived 300 miles away in Hastings, and they arrested him, but no one had any idea why I'd been attacked. For the first three months, the police were adamant I'd done something to warrant the attack, as my attacker refused to comment. Because no motive could be established, police stressed to the family that there was the very real possibility that Andreas, or perhaps Pia, perhaps even Theo, Was still at risk from another attack, and as a result, panic buttons were installed in the house, and Andreas carried a personal alarm at all times. Pia recalled later I found the whole thing terrifying. In the supermarket, I would suddenly panic, wondering if the man or woman next to me was going to attack me. I became terrified of allowing Theo out of my sight. It must be terrifying, something like that, mustn't it? it really must but there was also another challenge that the family had to face for because much of the police investigation centered on establishing a motive for the attack to do so they had to trawl every aspect of the couple's private life andreas said later for a long time afterwards i felt like the criminal not the victim Pierre and i had no secrets left The police basically seized our house as part of the investigation. They took everything. Our cars, our phones, our computers, our sat-navs. They took all of my belongings, all my company files, our bank accounts, even my wife's clothes. She had to go out and buy some from the supermarket while they were trying to establish a motive for the attack. I understand completely why police had to examine everything, our laptops and iPhones and iPads. They needed to discover if there was something in my life that was wrong, but it was a very unnerving process. From day one, the police promised they would get to the bottom of the case, but as the investigation wore on, I lost faith. Every now and then the police would ask for a meeting, but in time, we came to accept that we were never going to know. I'd lie in bed at night going through people I knew wondering, could it be a disgruntled tenant, someone who believed that I'd slighted them? I wondered why, who or what was behind it. Eventually, Pia was so disturbed about still being in the house that the Christophoros family moved out of their home in Carine Road, staying in temporary accommodation. She admitted later, Returning to that house would be very difficult for me because I still dream constantly of acid attacks. Completely understandable, I thought, when something so horrific happens in your home, especially as you're staying there, minus your stuff because the police have it, feeling unsafe and somewhat under suspicion, you would go, wouldn't you today, The Christophoros family have long since left the house in Carine Road, although they do remain in the Truro area, but then there was a development. Andreas told later. Then one day, about six to seven months later, I received a phone call from the major crimes unit saying they needed to meet me in person. I presumed it would be another pointless meeting, but they turned up at my house and said, We know why, and we have the evidence to prove it. My emotions didn't know how to digest what they'd just said. I remember just sitting at the table and screaming. They had the evidence to prove that it was mistaken identity. I thought, finally, I'd been telling them that all along, and for six to seven months, police thought I was connected to something untoward. They had enough to get a conviction, and that was all that mattered. It was a good day. They had the evidence to prove Phillips did it. The Phillips in question was 48-year-old married father of three, David Phillips, a painter and decorator from the Barley Lane area of Hastings in East Sussex, who'd been arrested at his home on Friday the 12th of December 2014, along with a 16-year-old boy, believed to be his teenage son, but who was later released with no further action being taken against him. Phillips had been traced as police had scrutinised traffic CCTV from the afternoon of the attack from traffic cameras on the A390 Tresauls Road, only a short distance from the Carrine Road and Newbridge Lane areas of Truro, and which had caught a red Peugeot partner van speeding eastwards only moments after Andreas had been attacked. Investigation established that this van was found to be registered to Phillips, so he was subsequently spoken to was arrested and on Saturday 13th of December was charged with grievous bodily harm with intent, appearing at Truro Magistrates Court on Monday the 15th of December. Now that may seem a bit of a jump there, and this is frustrating really, because through researching, I was unable to find out what evidence police exactly had against Phillips to raise this charge at the time aside from the CCTV evidence alone of his van in the area. Now, whether it was from written or telecommunications evidence found at the time of his arrest, I'm not sure it isn't reported. What is reported is that Phillips was uncommunicative following his arrest, denying any involvement when arrested, giving the full no-comment stance in interview, and refusing to discuss the matter any further whatsoever even whilst he was on remand awaiting trial. Hence this led to police scrutinising Andreas and his life, looking for a possible motive. David Phillips denied the charge at each committal hearing that he appeared at at Truro Crown Court following his arrest, whilst his 45-year-old wife Nicole was even arrested and also charged in April 2015 with perverting the course of justice, charges which she strongly denied. But this denial, this refusal to talk only went so far, perhaps with the enormity of his actions proving too much to bear, as by the time Phillips' trial was due to begin, on the 28th of September 2015 at Truro Crown Court, Phillips that day admitted the attack and changed his plea to one of guilty. As we said before, Phillips had refused to comment during police interviews and this guilty plea was the first indication of him admitting what he'd done to anyone, including apparently his own wife, who appeared visibly shocked when she heard her husband's plea, and broke down in tears. Following her husband's admission of guilt, Nicole Phillips' trial was halted, and no further action was taken against her, but the judge, however, ordered her charge to remain on file. So, the reason behind such horror? Truro Crown Court heard that Phillips had travelled more than 300 miles, a five-hour journey from his home in Hastings, to get to Andreas Christophoros' home in Truro that Tuesday in December of the previous year, because he believed him to be a man who had sexually attacked a close member of his family, a sexual assault that had been carried out on the unnamed family member during a holiday in Cornwall, where Phillips and his family had formerly lived, some months before, and that he wished to exact revenge for the obsessed phillips who had no previous criminal record of relevance it's claimed whatever that means again is not reported had spent months brooding upon this planning this vengeance before driving to truro on the ninth of december 2014 armed with a container of sulfuric acid taken from a car battery Intent on using it to leave his intended victim visibly scarred, as opposed to the emotional ones that his family member had following the assault. But this attack was said in court to have been ill prepared and ill executed. And that's a bit of an understatement, really, for that's the very least that it was. Because Andreas Christophoros had never assaulted anybody, he'd never even laid eyes on the family member Phillips was down there getting retribution for and he had certainly never met David Phillips, who didn't know Andreas either. Phillips had gone to the wrong house and attacked the wrong person. When the GBH with intent charge was put to him by the clerk in court, Phillips said in response, I am ashamed to say, guilty ma'am." Before sentencing was deferred until 9th of October, Phillips' counsel, Mohammed Bashir QC, asked for a pre-sentence report to be prepared, telling the court that the defendant claimed he was totally sorry for carrying out the acid attack, and that Phillips wished to formally write to Andreas to explain the reasons for his actions, saying, There are underlying reasons why this offence occurred, taking into account background and family life. Although very serious, it is essentially His first offence. Yet, a pretty bloody serious first offence, though, isn't it? And that would be some letter to read from Phillips, let alone for him to write, wouldn't it? Can you imagine? Prosecuting counsel Philip Lee QC told the court that there may be unfinished business as far as Phillips was concerned, which could affect the length of his jail sentence, as there was the very real threat he may continue to pose a risk to the general public the crown's case has always been that mr christopheros was an innocent man who was targeted wrongly the victim was left with very serious life-changing injuries i'd say he was pretty dangerous wouldn't you phillips was then told by presiding mr justice carr that he would certainly be facing a lengthy prison term when he returned to court for sentencing the following month before he was again remanded in custody awaiting sentencing sat silently at the back of the court to watch proceedings wearing sunglasses and his now constant silicon facial mask for protection his extensive burn still clearly visible was andreas it had been the first time since the attack more than nine months before that he'd been out in public And so difficult was it for him to make the journey to court that he'd had to sit in the darkened back of the car and the rear windows of the vehicle he'd travelled in had to be covered over with blankets. But, and he was later to admit it was a difficult thing to do, but there was no way he was not going to face his attacker. Speaking outside the court, Detective Chief Inspector David Thorne, the lead officer in the case, said we believe it was a revenge attack and he did get the wrong person completely. David Phillips felt a member of his family had been seriously hurt and planned the revenge attack for a personal reason to do with his family. I'm not going to go into detail about that incident, but he felt aggrieved and thought he needed to take revenge against the person who'd done it. But he got the wrong address and injured the wrong person. He thought he had the right address but as it turns out, he was in completely the wrong area. The whole thing was ill-prepared and ill-thought-out, and the end result is an innocent victim who's been left significantly disfigured. His face, arms and body were burned, he's blind in one eye and partially sighted in the other. This is an extremely tragic set of circumstances which has led to life-changing injuries to a completely innocent man. Horrendous, that isn't it? A a case of mistaken identity. How unbelievable! Now, the actual intended target of Phillips's vengeance has never been named, although it was reported that he was traced by police and had, at one time, it transpired, lived near to where Andreas and his family lived. However, there are no records or reports of any arrest or charges being brought against this man for any sexual offences and the matter had never been reported on any further, which highlights just how ill-prepared and how ill-thought-out Phillips' actions were indeed, doesn't it? On Friday, October 9th, 2015, David Phillips appeared once again at Truro Crown Court for sentencing, where the court heard the full horrific details of the attack, of how Andreas was left, I quote, mutilated and maimed following the attack, And of the torturous surgery he had to undergo to reconstruct his face, leaving him constantly requiring to wear a transparent silicon compression mask to protect his face, one that was prone to tightening and was extremely sensitive. But nothing brought this horror home stronger to the court than the victim impact statement given by Andreas, which was read out to the court by Philip Lee. Now, it's a remarkable and touching, very frank account and reads in part as follows. In a way, the old me died when he threw acid in my face. It is what it is, and I'm not the sort of person to lie down and be broken by it. But it is fair to say my life up to the point of the attack was completely different to what it is now. I've had to rebuild a whole new life since, as it has affected every aspect of my life. I'm still having regular surgery and routinely will for a very long time. The struggle is never going to end. I have severe scars on my face, torso and arms. I'm on my third set of eyelids. I'm blind in my left eye. I won't get my eyesight back and always will have facial scars because there's no way to fully heal them and they are injuries that I will carry for the rest of my life. I'm not one to let it break me. But life, in every single aspect imaginable, has been much more difficult. From sleeping, I have to have more sleep than I used to now, because if not, it affects my scars, they get tight and irritable. But I don't sleep anywhere near as much as I used to. If I've had a bad day with my scars, in brackets, stress, dehydration, too much exercise, too much sugar, too much caffeine, then my scars will be tight resulting in my eyelids not closing properly. Therefore, this has a knock-on effect to my eyesight through the day. I can't see well at night, so I avoid going out in the evening. There's so much less I'm able to do, but I have learned to adapt. I still work and run my own business. Things just take me longer now, as my sight is weaker. It has had a big effect on my life, and every aspect of my life is affected. Nothing is the same, not one bit. Everything is harder. But I have an amazingly strong wife and amazing friends. Thank God for good friends and family. After finally admitting his guilt and pleading guilty to assault causing grievous bodily harm with intent, confessing that Andreas had done nothing at all to provoke the attack, he was simply the victim of mistaken identity. On the 9th of October 2015, David Phillips was sentenced to life imprisonment by Mr Justice Simon Carr, who told him that he deserved being handed, I quote, a sentence of last resort. Told that he must serve a minimum tariff of 7 years and 68 days before being considered for release on licence, Judge Carr told Phillips, He was an entirely innocent victim of mistaken identity. I have heard your motive, but none of that can justify your culpability. This was extremely carefully planned and executed. The effect of your actions has been life changing. As Phillips was led from the dock, he looked at Andreas, his victim, and as he walked by him, touching his heart, Phillips said, I am so very sorry. Andreas said nothing. Speaking the following day, Andreas told the Daily Mirror newspaper that he would never accept his attacker's apology. He said, Life was the right decision. He was very uncooperative with the police and only pleaded guilty at the 11th hour when I was in the witness room to give evidence. As I walked past, Phillips touched his heart and said, Sorry. I said nothing, nothing at all. To be honest, it fell on deaf ears and we just walked straight past. It didn't make any difference. His actions were stupid. I don't know how he ended up doing what he did or who gave him the wrong address. But I just can't see a way of ever accepting his apology. He's destroyed his own life, but he's destroyed mine too. He's taken me down with him. Phillips' defence team made much of how the effect of a sexual assault on a family member had put him in an impossible position i find that phrase insulting there can be no justification for what he did every man has a choice in their actions even if they're plagued with emotion and revenge he was not in an impossible situation andreas and his family actually appealed the decision concerning phillips's minimum tariff on the grounds of longevity thinking that it was nowhere near long enough but were refused their appeal as they were told that Mr Justice Carr had acted fairly. Following his conviction, David Phillips appealed a sentence in London's Court of Appeal, which was heard on Wednesday the 20th of April 2016, at a hearing chaired by Mr Justice Wynne Williams, sitting with Lady Justice Rafferty and Judge Peter Collier-Cusey. Here, While the devastating impact of his crime, and I quote, the dreadful nature of the offence, the planning and determination to carry through was noted by the panel, so too was the remorse that was supposedly expressed by Phillips. It was ruled that the evidence offered at trial suggested the threat he posed was limited to, I quote, the very particular facts of the offence, and that Phillips had wrongly been condemned as a highly dangerous man from whom the entire public would need future protection. Andreas, sat in the back of the court to hear the court's decision about his attacker's sentence, heard the following from Mr Justice Williams. We are therefore forced to conclude that this life sentence was not justified and must be quashed. The court instead substituted Phillips' life sentence for a standard 16-year prison sentence, of which Phillips would serve half before qualifying for automatic release. Lady Justice Rafferty then ended the hearing by thanking Mr Christophoros, who sat at the back of the court, for attending the appeal. Imagine being there and hearing that, eh? If you've got them, then it must have been like a kick in the bollocks, that, mustn't it? Some two years after the attack, though his day-to-day constant pain had subsided somewhat, Andreas was still undergoing regular surgeries, the intensive skin grafts to mask his scars, and additional, somewhat painful laser treatments to break down this scar tissue further, he told the Daily Mirror newspaper. I get on with the day the best I can, but I'm still suffering with full facial scars, limited eyesight, and the other issues that come with it. My healing is coming on well, but unfortunately, it seems I produce quite thick scars. I'm out of the danger zone, but I've got a long way to go in terms of my healing. By this time, he was back running his property management business, feeling that getting back into his working routine as best as he could would be the most beneficial therapy for him. And it was about this time in his life also, that he came to become a fundraiser and campaigner for victims of an attack such as his, spurred on to do so by someone else who'd brought light out of such darkness. The Katie Piper Foundation, set up in 2009 by the model and TV presenter who herself was horrifically attacked and disfigured only the previous year, is a charity that provides support, assistance and understanding for individuals who've suffered severe burns, and Andreas was to receive an immense amount of support from them, especially during his first few years recovering from his injuries. Andreas explained later the difference that the foundation made to him. I am a proud man who doesn't like asking for any help. However, given the similarities between my injuries and Katie Piper's, My mum kept saying I must get in touch. One afternoon, after feeling low, I thought I'd send them an email, not knowing what good it would do. I actually started my email with I don't know what good this is going to do any writing this to you, but this is my story. And I wrote everything I could down. It was actually the first time I'd written everything down, and I remember being in tears doing it. One of their staff, Zinni, who if I didn't know better, is an actual angel, replied saying, We're so happy you got in contact, we've been following your story in the news. From then on, they were a source of information and support for me. I wanted to go to a burns clinic in France, but I didn't know how I was going to pay for it, as it was over 10k for my initial stay of three weeks. I'd put my car on the market to cover the costs and said to the Katie Piper Foundation that I was going no matter what. Zinni said leave it with her and the day I was flying out to France she phoned me to say she'd secured me funding through an independent funding request through the NHS. Best news ever. My relationship with them has grown so much since then and I'm kind of like their male front figure now. Indeed, Andreas began a close relationship with the foundation, and alongside friends of his, went on to raise more than £20,000 in total through a series of events, including running. Andreas explained further, I'm not a runner, I haven't run for about 13 years, so the thought of me running was far-fetched, I'd say. But, in honour of all the people who did fundraisers for me, and with some taunting from close friends, I agreed to do a 10k run, probably sooner than I would have liked. I started training fairly heavily, well I say fairly heavily, but heavily for me, on January the 4th. Running with burns and scars is a pain in the arse really. You're going to sweat where you have scars, my vision gets a lot worse, so I do struggle when I'm running. My nostrils close over, so then I struggle to breathe, and I end up panting a lot more. But before long, I was doing six kilometers midweek and ten kilometers at the weekend. Two months after beginning this training, which takes dedication anyway to do, doesn't it? But imagine it with the challenges Andreas has just described on top. On Saturday fourth of march twenty seventeen, Andreas smashed his 10K with a time of just over an hour. Since then he's carried on and gone on to complete several of these and in 2019 completed the London Landmarks Half Marathon to raise funds for a charity called Face Forward, which helps provide life-changing surgeries to victims of cruel acts of crime, child sex trafficking and domestic violence, and for which Andreas is now UK ambassador and patient advocate for. Since the attack, Andreas and his family have continued rebuilding their lives, welcoming son Lazarus into the world in 2018. He's continued his charity work alongside running his property business, and has continued to be a very vocal campaigner for stricter control over the sale of corrosive liquids that can be used in such attacks as disfigured him, as well as calling for much stricter sentencing guidelines and punishments for offenders carrying out such horrific actions. As we said at the start, the statistics for these kinds of attacks are horrifying. At one point, it was estimated there was one such attack every three days in the UK, and the government has, over the previous few years, codified somewhat the laws governing the sale and handling of products that contain levels of acid and other corrosive substances that mean they're either regulated or reportable under the Poisons Act 1972. In January 2018, the Home Office announced a voluntary agreement with several major retailers in the UK, including all major supermarkets and DIY chains such as Wix or B&Q and Screwfix, in which they made commitments about the responsible sales of corrosive substances, including not selling products containing the most harmful substances to anyone under 18. This led to new legislation coming into force on the 1st of November 2018 to strengthen further the controls against possessing corrosive substances, meaning that today, anyone found in possession of sulfuric acid above a 15% concentration without a Home Office sanctioned license faces being handed up to a 20-month custodial sentence as well as an unlimited fine. Applicants require a legitimate purpose to obtain the license to retail such products and must disclose any relevant health issues or previous criminal offenses they may have whilst doing so. Retailers failing to check for a license also face the same punishment. So availability of such substances is now severely limited, but although it's much more difficult to obtain such corrosive liquids, it's not impossible and they're not altogether unobtainable sadly meaning that we will likely never see an elimination of such attacks, and potentially, perhaps several more people who will go through the hell that Andreas has over the past six years. Yet remarkably, he's moved forward with his life and has not let bitterness consume him, which it quite easily could have, although understandably, he does continue to have strong feelings towards what happened to him. His strongest is a feeling of being let down by the justice system. As I said before, he was in the Court of Appeal to witness David Phillips' sentence being commuted from life to 16 years, which would be a wrench enough in itself, yeah? Okay, so imagine how he must have felt when just last year, in September 2020, he was informed that his attacker had been moved to an open prison, being prepared for his eventual release on parole which could happen as soon as october the 7th 2021 yeah andreas told the daily mail newspaper following being broken the news they let me know last monday he's now been moved to an open prison how can he be let out so soon how can he do what he did and only spend five and a half years behind actual bars the fact he can already spend time outside jail Enjoying good weather and seeing his family back in his home county is an extremely low blow when I'm still needing regular surgery. He's now allowed to apply for a job and can start to rebuild his life. I'll have to continue having surgery for the best part of mine. He did what he did, and the police did their job while the NHS saved my life. But then the judges didn't do what they should and give out a sentence to fit the crime. It became very obvious that in the UK, you can throw a pint of sulfuric acid in someone's face, ruin their life, cost them physically, emotionally, mentally, cost the state hundreds of thousands, if not millions, in hospital fees and police investigation, and only spend five and a half years behind actual bars. It just doesn't add up. I believe that the UK has got its strategy towards this completely wrong. I strongly believe that the sentencing for anyone who carries out any form of acid attack, whether their intended victim is injured badly or not, should serve a life sentence with a minimum term of 20 or more years. The ultimate repercussions for an acid attack are lifelong. I've now spent years campaigning for tougher sentencing, and the whole time I've been campaigning, I've not encountered any opposition to my stance. The only people that ever did, With the three high-ranking judges in the high court my frustration is still very much targeted towards them completely understandable andreas i'm with you there mate but in a testament to the strength of character that we're talking about here andreas continued i don't shoulder a huge amount of anger towards phillips he did something which was horrific and stupid and the fact he got the wrong person is all the evidence you need why you don't do something like this. My family wishes I was angrier and more vengeful about what happened, but the most satisfying thing for me is to come through what I've experienced and not feel full of rage, resentment or revenge. I could sit and talk to my attacker if I had to. I don't want to, but I could. That is my greatest achievement. Don't get me wrong, There have been times where I have howled with hysterical tears, but I am never going to allow what happened to define me. My injuries will haunt me for the rest of my life, but I am determined they are never going to overwhelm my life. Never. A truly remarkable and inspirational man, and a truly awful case indeed, this one, isn't it? Disturbing is the word that springs to mind for me. I was discussing the case with a friend of mine while I was researching it and writing the episode. I often do with use him as a reflecting board. And as I was describing it, I just felt myself being horrified and chilled to the bone by it. Well, it brought out a whole range of emotions in me. Parts of the tale broke me. I found parts of the tale inspirational and remarkable. But first and foremost, it was horror. I mean, the mindset that's in someone to do this to cause such catastrophic, life-changing injury to a person, to choose something so destructive as a weapon, and to drive some 300 miles with this in mind, so hell-bent on causing defilement that you don't even check to make sure you've got the right bloody person in mind for such horror. I just couldn't grasp it. I couldn't get my head around it at all. It chilled my blood. There are some truly evil fuckers about, is all I can say. I was also dismayed to learn that Phillips could later this year be released on licence and be able to pick up the pieces of his life, which personally, I think, is a disgrace for his crime. And I was even more mind-boggled that someone who does something so heinous for whatever bollocks mitigating circumstance that he claimed could be classed as anything but an extreme danger to the general public. Just look at Andreas. As well as the images on the show's Instagram page, there are many images available through an online search. Look at his injuries, look at him lying in his hospital bed or the various stages of his road back and try and imagine what he and his family have gone through for the past six years. The pain, the loss, the changed life that they've had to come to terms with. Yes, Andreas has the strength of character and support of a loving family that have enabled him to, in his own remarkable words, be able to sit down with Phillips if he wished, that's proper admirable that isn't it, but he chooses not to, and personally I find that more than understandable, I really do. But think about what he's gone through to arrive at that mindset, think about all of that, and then see if you come to the conclusion that David Phillips is not still an extreme danger to the public, because I myself cannot. I would love as always to hear your thoughts and feedback concerning Andreas' story in the episode Scarred which I welcome you to do so and as always, you can do so through any of the show's social media links or in the ever-present episode discussion thread that is now up in the show's Facebook discussion group. There are some links present in the episode show notes for sites offering support for victims of such an attack such as Face Forward and the Katie Piper Foundation There are guidance notes for initial response reactions in the event of such an attack. There's a list of the legislation implemented in 2018 concerning the sale and possession of corrosive substances, as well as a list of further reading and articles that I used for research purposes whilst I was creating the episode. Have a bit of a dig in and a look around, I do recommend it. But finally... I invite you to take from the episode and bear in mind not just the images of Andreas's horrific injuries, but something that I also shared on the show's Instagram page. The wonderful picture of a family of four who look so happy and closer than ever. Think about his honest and positive words throughout the episode, or the much fundraising and campaigning he's made part of his life since 2017. See pictures of him with his wife, his sons, his friends and all of the fun times that they're enjoying that are available to see and I'm sure that his words that I closed the tale off with will ring true with you. What happened to him doesn't define him his strength of character and his nature does. With that it's wrap up time here once again. Onwards and upwards with another episode to create, so I'll shuffle off and do that right now. Well, I'll crack on with doing it right now anyway. I thank you guys as always for joining me here today. It means the absolute world as ever that you do, and I look forward to you joining me the next time around, which is coming to you in just a couple of shakes. All that remains for me to say is that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast. Wishing you guys all good and safe times. Keep it together and stay safe and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care all and goodbye for now.